I know we just completed a local election, and we're just beginning a national election. This is the, uh, for this next year. Uh, so for some of you, that might be really exciting, and you might love all the drama and the emotions and all the, uh, the, the stuff that happens in an election year. And for others, you might be dreading it. You might be ready for it to be over already, and you frankly would rather just do without. But either way, it doesn't matter. Um, either way, we have to talk about our relationship between the church and the state. We need to understand what is the relationship between politics and religion. And today's gospel is typically uh, one of those passages in which we turn to to help us understand that relationship a little bit better. So I'd like to reflect upon that a little bit today to figure out what is the guiding principle that Jesus and then therefore the church gives us in these matters. So as always, we want to put the gospel context into, well, we want to put the gospel reading into context. So the context is that we're in Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, and this is towards the end of Matthew's gospel, and if, uh, his, his preaching, his ministry, his teaching, all of that has been widely known, and by this point, most people in the gospel has made their decision whether or not they like Jesus or not. And we can pretty much see that the Pharisees definitely don't like Jesus. In fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem for the final time. So really, we're like just moments away from his passion and his death. We're kind of, in a sense, in Holy Week as far as the context of this passage goes. So that's how close we are to Jesus' death, that the tension is rising really high. So here we are. The Pharisees are trying to discredit Jesus in whatever way they can. So they try to trap him in his speech. They ask him a question that will be a lose-lose uh, question no matter how he responds, so they think uh, publicly. And the question is, should we pay the temple tax or not? I mean, not temple tax, the census tax. Should we pay the census tax or not? And so at the time, it's the Roman government that is having control over the Jewish land. And, and so it's a lose-lose because if Jesus says yes, then it discredits his influence with the Jews because it makes him look like a Roman sympathizer, that he's on the side of the Romans and therefore betraying the Jews. But if he says no publicly, then the Romans might find out and they might punish him. And the Romans were known to take physical force and even sometimes to kill those that were opposed to the Roman government. So either way, the Pharisees are excited because they think they finally got him. And of course, as always, that's not how it works out. Jesus is God, so he has the divine mind, which is far more intelligent than ours, and he's able to get out of any pickle with creativity. And he says, show me the coin. Whose coin, whose inscription, and whose image is this? And they say Caesar's, which if you look on Google, you'll actually see that you can have the, we still have images of those coins. And in Latin, it says, um, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Did you catch that? The divine Augustus. That was actually on the coin. They referred to their Roman emperor as divine. And on the other side of the coin, it refers to Caesar as the high priest. So this is theological language. This is highly offensive to the Jews and even to natural law that we know that 
the emperors, the Roman emperors, were not God, but they were claiming to be God. They were claiming to be divine. But Jesus nonetheless says, whose inscription, whose image? They say Caesar's. And Jesus, kind of in an ironic statement, says, then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but to God what belongs to God. So what's interesting here is that, yes, we repay to Caesar what belongs to him, the coin, but we repay to God what belongs to God, and that's everything including the divine name, which does not belong to Caesar. So St. Lawrence of Brindisi, uh, who is a doctor of the church, he gives us this interpretation. He says, we, you and I, as humans and as Christians, have a twofold obedience um, to human laws and also to the laws of God. And therefore, because the coin belongs, uh, has Caesar's image on it, it belongs to Caesar. But you and I, imprinted upon each of us, is the image of God. Therefore, we belong to God. And we know this from Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Therefore, we belong to God and we give everything to God. Sure, Caesar can have his coin, he can have his taxes. But God, we belong to him. So today is St. John Paul II's feast day. Um, I love St. John Paul II. I talk about him all the time. He's my favorite saint, and there's so much to say about him. Certainly not enough time in one homily. But I will say at least this one thing about him today. At the beginning of his pontificate, whenever he became pope, his first encyclical that he wrote was titled Redemptor Ominis, which translates to the Redeemer of Man. And the Redeemer of man is all about how Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Redeemer of humanity. And it's through the lens of Jesus that we can discover really what it means to be human. That if we want to know what is the meaning, what is our identity, what is our purpose as human beings, look no further than Jesus Christ. And this really became a theme throughout all of his years as Pope. And you can certainly see those themes in Theology of the Body, um, which were uh, part of his teachings later, and uh, other, other places in his encyclicals. But you see, before that, when, when the church would talk about our human dignity, we would typically appeal to the book of Genesis chapter 1, being made in the image and likeness of God. And that's good. That's biblical. So that's true. And sometimes the church would also appeal to philosophy, to natural law, and just pointing out that through reason, we can figure out that, that humans are a species that's higher than all the rest, and therefore there is a dignity that is owed to us. And John Paul II acknowledges that. That's all true. But he just takes it further by putting it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus Christ gives us our dignity. And because of that, we have an inherent right to worship. That our right to religious worship comes from our human dignity, which comes from Christ who is himself the image of the invisible God, as St. Paul tells us. So this, this kind of echoes the themes from uh, Dignitatis Humanae, which is the Declaration on Human Freedom, uh, on, on Religious Freedom, uh, which is a Vatican II uh, document, one of the Vatican II documents. 
And there, they, they kind of articulate, and it's not a new idea, but they kind of articulate it clearly, the distinction between church and state. But I don't know about you. When I learned church, uh, the, the separation of church and state, I learned it in kind of more of a secular sense. Like, I learned it like churches over here, states over there, stay away from each other. Like, just stay out of my way. Y'all do y'all's things and just, just don't infringe upon us. And y'all do y'all's things, just don't infringe. And, like, just have totally separate lives. I don't know about you, but that's at least kind of the sense in which I got when I learned it uh, in my youth. But that's just unrealistic. It's just not actually true. That's just not the way it plays out. The thing is, church and state are distinct. But they have to be harmonious. Why? Because both care about human beings, about human persons. The church cares about politics because politics deals with human affairs. And Dignitatis Humanae recognizes that, that although it's distinct, they need to be in harmony. That, that the state does not have ultimate power, like the divine Augustus, so he would call himself, would, would say that he had. The, the, the state does not have ultimate divine power, but at the same time, they do have a proper authority. So we do have to figure out where that goes. Uh, Pope Benedict uh, kind of pre- uh, talks about this in his encyclical Deus Caritas S, translated God is Love. And he uh, mentions that the church cannot and should not replace the state. In other words, you can't just get rid of government and just let the church be in control. That, that's, that doesn't work either. However, the church cannot and should not stay on the sidelines in matters of justice. The church should speak out and be a defender and promoter of human dignity rooted in Jesus Christ and all of us being made in the image and likeness of God. So here's a few catechism references for you of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 2233, I'm sorry, 2238 says this, that all of us should be subject to authority. We have authorities set in place. That's just part of structuring human society. So we're part of families. There's a structure in the family with authorities, um, school and the workplace, and even, yes, local and national and global government. All right, but the Catechism does say that we have the right and sometimes the duty to voice just criticisms whenever those authorities are immoral or infringe upon our human dignity. Uh, Paragraph 22, 39, and 40 say that all of us have a moral obligation to be active citizens in civic life. We can't run away from that. We can't hide from it. So we should pay taxes, and we should vote, and we even should defend our country. Paragraph 2242 says this, however, that when the state imposes immoral commands, when the state asks us to do something immoral, we should refuse to obey, that we are, in fact, required to disobey whenever they are trying to get us um, as church people to go against our conscience. So that's where it gets sticky, right? That's where a lot of the debate happens, and that's where it gets hard, and that's where some people just get discouraged and would rather give up. But this is where they come into harmony. The church speaks about morality, 
And that's where morality bleeds into politics. That's where we have to figure it all out together. Usually, in my experience, uh, most moral issues that, that bleed into politics, uh, most of them fall into um, one of three umbrellas, and that being life, family, or worship. So life uh, we talk a lot about being pro-life, and certainly that means uh, from conception, so we, we care about the unborn, but also to natural death, so the vulnerable uh, persons who are on the edge of dying, but also, also everyone in between, especially the vulnerable, especially anyone who's not powerful, especially those who are discriminated based off of their race or even their religion especially those who are poor, who are not as well off, who are unpopular, who are lonely, who are sick. Anyone who is vulnerable does, in fact, deserve charity. They do, in fact, have a preferential option for charity. Okay, um, another one is family which is a fundamental building block of society, and we have to defend that and promote it and encourage it. And it's hard, as you all know. You're all part of families, and you know how hard it is. And that starts with protecting and encouraging marriage, properly understood, between man and a woman. And that's where it gets sticky oftentimes. Also, the right to worship. Um, A lot of times the state would prefer that we just keep our religious beliefs private and hidden, but that has just never been the case in our understanding of what it means to worship. Worship is a communal experience. It's a public experience that goes all the way back to the beginnings of Scripture when Moses went to set God's people free so that they could publicly worship, and therefore that is a fundamental right to each of us. So what is our role? What is my role as a priest? Well, my role as a priest is not to be a politician. Canon Law, chapter, uh, uh, paragraph 285 says that priests are forbidden to assume public office. So I can't run for governor or mayor president or, or any of those things. Uh, why? Because Canon Law, cha- uh, paragraph 287, says that the priest's role is to foster peace and harmony amongst a lot of different people with a lot of different creative ideas. So Catechism 2442 says it's not the role of the pastors to intervene directly in politics. Instead, it's the vocation of the laity. The pastors, myself, we are to equip you guys with the tools to see human affairs and all of the issues out there through the lens of the gospel. I'm here to speak the truth of the gospel and and encourage you to think creatively, to think of those creative solutions through the lens of the gospel. But it's the role of the laity, and we need you. We really need you. The role of the laity to care about human affairs. Yes, to care about politics. Not for the sake of power, and corruption, but for the sake of human persons made in the image and likeness of God. Human persons with fundamental dignity. It's kind of like how I have no business walking up to a, an artist and telling them how to paint. 
or walking up to a, a doctor and saying, no, no, this is how you should be performing surgery. That's not my field. That's not my expertise. But I can encourage and inspire the artist and the doctor to see their craft and their skill through the lens of the gospel and to bring Christ into it. And that is my role as a priest. But your role as laity is to get into the weeds of human affairs. So let's wrap this up. What is your posture towards politics? How do you see it? I do see and I fear that many of us take one of two extremes. For, for many people, they, they go all in with politics and politics becomes their God. Caesar replaces God, just as the, the Roman emperor called himself the divine son of the divine Augustus. So some people give, give politics their everything. They're, they're always watching the news. They're always fired up about it. They, they really believe that a utopian society of perfection with just the right people in place is possible. And then the other extreme is the people that are just tired, done, and they just turn it off. And they just say, I don't care. I'm just going to bunker up. The world's going to end soon anyway, so let me just live myself. Let me just me do me. And neither of those is the way that Christ instructs. Because in the gospel today, he says to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. We have to find a middle ground of bringing the harmony of the relationship between church and state. I know that it's an election year, and I know that's going to be um, difficult for many of us and, and stressful and dramatic, but my encouragement is to take neither of those extremes we are not saved by politics. We're saved by Jesus Christ. But don't give up on politics because we do care about politics because we care about human persons and we care about human affairs, especially whenever a, someone's human dignity is being taken away from them or being taken advantage of. So don't give up on politics even though it's tough. Jesus reminds us, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. This is the harmony of church and state. And I know that also a lot of us are have in our mind the, um, the war of Israel and Hamas uh, overseas. And I know that's bringing up a lot of questions, a lot of worry, a lot of anxiety, and there's a lot to say about it. But Pope Francis has invited us to another day of prayer and fasting. Um, he's inviting the entire world to join in, and that's this Friday. So I strongly encourage you to join in. To, to Like this is the harmony of church and state, that we need to fight this battle in prayer. We have to at least start with prayer and fasting. That there are real human persons that are suffering a lot. And I understand that it's a very complicated situation. I will not claim to be an expert in it. I know there's a lot of opinions on different sides to that story and different nuances. But one thing we can all agree on is that people are suffering and therefore we should pray and fast with the rest of the world in solidarity for the reconciliation and peace and harmony of society for the restoration of human dignity to each one of us. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But don't forget that all things belong to God, including Caesar. Amen.